we are going to get started. I hate to break up the fellowship. I love seeing it. But we got some other stuff that we got to do as well. So, um, you know, I, I too, I'm certainly not going to repeat everything that, you know, Jeff went over. And, and um, but, I, but I just, too, want to reiterate our love and care and, you know, for, for just the Tusky Valley community and, and everything that's going on. We have some, as Jeff mentioned, we have some, some people in our body on the front lines there. So you know, Tiff Shaw, Katie Wells work there. I'm sure there are others that I'm not even aware of. Kagan Randolph is a counselor, is, was there last week, will be there again um, this week. So we have, you know, some members that um, right there on the front lines, not only dealing with the tragedy themselves, but trying to help others navigate it as well. So uh, we need just to continue to be in prayer for them. That is real help. That is true help that, that we can provide. And, but even with heavy hearts, you know, we continue to do what the Lord calls us to do, and that's to keep moving and to keep serving and to keep trusting. And that's actually what we're going to see in our passage in Acts chapter 9 this morning, that process of moving and serving and trusting and what that looks like and where that goes. And so this is important for us to see together this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you and you're not already there, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. It's where we're going to be this morning. We kicked off this very important chapter last Sunday, so we're systematically moving our way through the book of Acts, looking at every verse uh, in, this, in this book. And so, you know, we started at the beginning of the year. We've made it up to Acts chapter 9 here uh, for this Sunday. And, and like I said, we kicked off this important chapter last Sunday, and it's important because it for many reasons, but, but one of the primary ones, obviously, is it includes the conversion story of Saul of Tarsus, who later in this book becomes known as Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. We all know Paul. So this is a major component to this transitioning nature of God's plan that we've talked about throughout this study, away from Israel for the time being and to the Gentiles, to the gospel of grace that we know today through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is God's method of salvation today. That's how he dispenses his grace Today, that's why speaking to the church in the church age, in Galatians 3.28, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And, and the apostle Paul who wrote that, Saul of, of Tarsus, was to become the main person to take that message to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. And we'll even see God's plan for him to do just that in our text this morning. God lays it out, the, what he has in, in front of Saul. But if you've been here these last few Sundays, you know that Saul was maybe the most improbable person alive to be the one to lead that mission, to do that job. It required a complete transformation in Saul's life, and that's what we looked at last Sunday. And in that message, we saw some keys to transformation that apply to our lives as well. Obviously, we talked about this last, last week. Saul's conversion was unique, right? It, it's safe to say that none of us in here have experienced, you know, a situation quite like that or something, you know, quite to that extent with the shining light of God's glory that knocked people down to the ground, the Lord himself questioning Saul verbally about why he was persecuting him. Like I told you last Sunday, your story might be different than mine, but I'm quite confident your story is not that. And God used that amazing confrontation on the road to Damascus to transform Saul and to completely transform his life. But what is not unique to Saul's story are the steps that he walked through to, to get to that transformed life. There are some keys that apply to all of us as well, and it begins with in, in acknowledging our enmity, that in our natural and unregenerated, unregenerated state, we are doctrinally, we are enemies of the Lord. I showed you those verses. But then even after being saved and being made one in Christ, as Galatians 3.28 talks about, we can still live practically as an enemy of God. We're not doctrinally. We're, our standing in the Lord is secure and, and, and we are holy before the Lord. But our state, the practical way we live our life, can be against the Lord and against his work. And it's certainly a shame if that's what you know, our life is marked by as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus, that practically, whether we know it or not, we talked about that, we are living as an enemy 
of the Lord. And that gets to our state of mind and what or who we allow to control our mind. So that's where transformation starts, understanding, acknowledging our enmity. Because doing that allows us to accept his examination. The Lord asked Saul a question. And that opened up an examination of his life and how he was living it. And that led Saul to ask two questions of the Lord in return, the two most important questions of life. And he did that because he was examining himself, which is necessary for any of us, the desire of transformation, not just salvation, right? Salvation, as Jeff said this morning, salvation is a free gift that God gives us. But for then to take that and move through the process of sanctification and transforming our life into the image of Christ, you know, that's a process. And you got to look at what's going on inside of you, you know, good, bad, or ugly. And then the final step that we saw was to adopt his existence. And that was pictured in the three days that he was blind and then he fasted. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. It was the death of Saul, so to speak, so that he could rise up and walk in newness in the life of Christ. And those are the keys to transformation that we studied last Sunday. And today we're going to continue with that theme as we learn how to move from transformation to action. That's the title for today's sermon, From Transformation to Action. And, and the complete story of Saul's conversion here in Acts chapter 9, we're working through it over multiple weeks, but the complete conversion of him being a, you know, a persecutor of Jesus and persecutor of Christians to becoming a bold witness of Jesus going throughout the world, taking the message of Christ, is a very interesting process, that, that a, d- a developing process that we see for him. Now, it, you know, it's laid out here through kind of primarily through one chapter, so it's quick, but it's, but it's very interesting, and there's some things we need to learn, and what we're, what we're going to study this morning is all part of that process. It's, it's kind of the in-between part. Last week, we saw the transformation. Next week, we'll really see the action kind of in full effect, but today, we're going to learn what happens in between. Because Saul wasn't ready from day one. He had to learn some things, and God chose a man by the name of Ananias, to help him get ready. So today we're going to learn some principles that we need to understand to help us move from transformation to action, from salvation to really serving the Lord. It's one thing to be saved and have a a life that's transformed, but then it's it's a process then to then move to to count the cost and, and do everything that it takes to then really be serving the Lord with our life. Many Christians never get to that point. They accept his offer of salvation, but they don't live a life that then serves him and, 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 and is, is on mission and, and in, you know, on task for him. So there's some important principles we need to learn that we can't skip. And unfortunately, many people do skip them. But those people usually fail you know, in their Christian walk. And, and I don't want you to fail. So I want you to see these principles, these internal perspectives that we need to work through as we count the cost of serving the Lord and what it means for you and what it looks like. And we're going to learn these principles from both Saul and, and, and Ananias. This is a very interesting section of Scripture that, again, like always, we just don't have time to dive into all of it. I mean, we could. It would just take us, you know, seven years to get through the book of Acts if we, you know, studied it in that level of detail. We could certainly do that, but um, we're cho- I'm choosing not to. Um, but we're going to look at mostly Ananias. This story is really focused on him, but we're going to see some principles from both Ananias and Saul and their individual responses to this very interesting situation that they each find themselves a part of. It it really is interesting. So I want you to try to put yourself there this morning and put yourself a part of this conversation. Uh, And we're going to see this in in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 18. So that's going to be our focus of study this morning. So follow along with me as I read our, our passage of study this morning, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. The Bible says, and there was a certain disciple a Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. And Ananias went his way, entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hast sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. All right, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to teach us this morning. There's something all of us in here, every single one of us need to learn something from the Lord this morning, and I know he wants to speak to you. So why don't you pray with me as I pray and ask the Lord to do just that and speak to your heart uh, this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, and, and Lord, um, we do just continue to pray for, for those affected by the, the bus crash this week and, and those still involved there on the front lines, and, and Lord, we just pray that uh, in, in situations like that that we certainly don't understand, we just pray that somehow you get glory through it. Um, and we know that's possible. And, and so, Lord, I just um, I pray for those families and pray for those involved and, and pray, Lord, that they'll see you uh, in the midst of, of their pain and in their tragedy. Lord, I pray that you be with us this morning as we open up your word and we examine what you have for us today. Um, and, and, Lord, I pray that you speak to each and every person in here, including me. And, and um, Lord, I pray that, that we listen and and we have ears that will hear and that we will respond accordingly um, as, you would, as your Holy Spirit leads us. So I pray that everything that is said is true to your word, and I pray that you're honored and glorified through all of it. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, so as I've already mentioned, there's some biblical principles that we're going to see out of both of these guys, out of both Saul and Ananias. In fact, most of them actually come from the life of Ananias. Like I said, he's, he's really the primary focus. Of, of those verses we read. And it's so interesting to me because this story is all we hear about this man in, in the entirety of the Bible. Now, he is, he is mentioned again in Acts chapter 22, but that's just Paul recounting his testimony of what happened here in Acts chapter 9. Now, we do learn a little bit more about Ananias in Acts 22 than we do in chapter 9. In Acts 22 verse 12, we learn this. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. So, so here is what we know of Ananias. Not much written about him, but here's what we know. We know he was a disciple of Jesus. We read that in Acts 9 and verse 10. Right, we know that he was a devout Jew, likely a proselyte, but that, but that doesn't matter. He was a devout Jew. He was a devout man according to the law and had a good report of all the Jews that were in that area. And devout here does not just mean religious. Actually, it means godly. It means devoted. So he was a committed learner of Jesus, a committed disciple, follower of Jesus with a good testimony. And those are great qualities to have that we all should desire. And it was that man that God chose to be the first contact for Saul as he moved from transformation to action. This is the guy that baptized Saul. And yet, like if you were to take a poll of anybody, you know, on the street, even, you know, pastors, whatever. Ananias is probably not going to make the list of the major players in the Bible. And he's probably not going to make the list. of who, 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 When you think of, you know, the great stories and men of the Bible that were used mightily by God, who's your top five? It's going to be pretty rare for someone to list Ananias on that. We only know him connected to this particular story and this particular task. And that's just interesting to me. Maybe it's not interesting to you. Maybe I'm boring you right now. But it's interesting to me that God didn't choose Peter or John or, or some other big name for this job. And there's some doctrinal reasons with respect to who, you know, Paul was kind of assigned to go after with the Gentiles. But it was just some dude. It was just Ananias. It wasn't one of the deacons. It wasn't anybody else. It was just this guy that we don't really know anything about other than these, these few verses. And that's interesting to me, but it's also encouraging to me. And lets me know that God uses all kinds of people for his glory. You know, at least ones with good character, like Ananias. So that begs the question, what character do we need to be used by God? What principles can we learn from Ananias in particular, but also Saul, during that, that, that time in between transformation and action that we need to apply to our lives? So that God can use us. And, and here's where it starts. Very simply, it starts with someone who is available and prepared. That's where it starts. Very simply. Someone who's available and prepared. And listen, I know this is obvious. 
But if you're not available or you're not prepared, how can God use you? And what we find with Ananias is a man who was both of those. He was available and he was prepared. And we know this from verse 10. Look there again. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I'm here, Lord. So we have a situation where the Lord wants to use Ananias. But he doesn't demand it. He doesn't will it himself. He just calls out to him. He just said his name. He said one word. He said Ananias. And he awaited Ananias' response. And Ananias' response was, Behold, I am here, Lord. I'm ready. I'm available. I'm prepared. What do you need? You name it. My position before you is I am here and I'm ready to go. That's what that says. And listen, this is the first and maybe most important attribute of a person that God will put into action, that he will put on the field in service to him. Are you available? Because the truth is, many believers aren't available today. They're too busy with the things of their life, with the things of this world, and they just don't have time. They just can't quite make time to fit in, you know, serving the Lord for their life. You know, if he called them, they'd just be sent, he'd be sent to voicemail. Because they're not ready to answer. They're just not ready to answer. And God wants to know. And what we see with Ananias is one of the primary methods that God has used throughout history of assessing availability. Just calling a name. Or reaching out in some abstract way and seeing... If that person is available, he has a mission for them to perform, but again, he will not make anyone do his will. He gives us all free will, and we all have a choice, so we have to make it. But for those in the Bible who were willing, what you see over and over and over again is them answering in this exact same way that Ananias did. Here I am. Or here am I. It is an expression of availability and preparedness. It is, it is an expression of readiness. It's an expression of readiness. So we see this approach, for example, with Abraham. When God was calling him to sacrifice Isaac and all that that meant and all that that pictured. And as difficult of, of a job as that was, Abraham was up for the task. In Genesis 22:1, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, he just calls his name. And he said, behold, here I am. We see it with Jacob, or Israel, as he was moving away from his father-in-law Laban to prepare for all that God had for him in the future as the, the, the father of the nation and in Genesis 31:11, and the angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, here I am. I'm here, Lord. What, what do you need? I'm in front of you. And the response is the same, and it is a beautiful, beautiful response. Indicating your position. I'm, I'm right here. Lord, I'm waiting on you. I'm at your beck and call. We see it also with Joseph in Genesis 37, 13, but that was actually a request of his father and not of the Lord directly. So I didn't include it in your, in your outline sheet. But, but again, another man, that, and, and the picture is the same. It was his father, but it's the picture of, of God, the father. And his father calls out to him and he says, here am I. We see it with Moses when God was calling him to lead Israel out of Egypt, Exodus 3 and verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of a bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. I'm right here, Lord. What do you need? Next to Samuel. You just see this theme over and over with many of the, who we would call heroes of the Bible, although Ananias is never included in that list. They were available and willing. And when God called Samuel as a young boy, guess what he said? 1 Samuel 3, 4, that the Lord called Samuel... And he answered, here am I. 
And when God needed someone to go warn Israel of their apostasy, Isaiah was that man, available and ready. Isaiah 6 verse 8, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. Lord, I'm available, I'm willing, I'm ready, I'm able to go, here am I, send me, I'll do it, I sign up. It's just a great expression, it is a great phrase, it's a great study that that I'm only scratching the surface of, but it indicates a readiness and a willingness and availableness that so many believers lack today. They're not willing to say, Lord, I'm here, I'm in front of you, and I'm ready. Here am I. Send me. Let me go. Let me do it. But listen, there are other examples in the Bibles where God called out to a person, and they weren't ready, and they weren't prepared. And, and I, I would venture to say always, but I won't say that because, because I don't know that I've done the study at that level, but nearly every time that I've seen it's because they were in sin. And the truth is, sin will always put you in a position of unpreparedness. You will always be unprepared if you're living in sin, if you have sin in your life. The, the example will show you, just for the sake of time, there's others that we could show you, but for the sake of time, the most obvious one was with Adam and Eve. This is true from the very beginning of man. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord called out unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. You see, the Lord, obviously, he's God. He knew where Adam was, but he wanted to put it in front of Adam. Because again, this, this phrase, here am I, it deals with our position before the Lord. And the Lord asked Adam, hey, where are you? I'm looking for you, and you're not there. I'm wondering where you are. And he was hiding because of his sin. He wasn't available. He wasn't prepared. He was, instead, he was afraid and ashamed. So he wouldn't acknowledge his, his, his position before the Lord. And that's what sin does to us. It just puts us in a position of hiding. It puts us in a position of, of shame. But there's so many times that that we find ourselves in that position. And so when the Lord calls out to us, we can't answer. So let me ask you, if God called on you today, are you ready? Are you available and prepared? Could you answer, here I am, Lord. Let's go. Whatever you need, I'm ready to serve you. Ananias was. And so was Saul, for that matter, which is why he asked the Lord, what we looked at last week, what wilt thou have me to do? So being available and prepared is the first step in moving from transformation to action. And then second, we also need to act in personal sacrifice. So we need to be available and prepared, but then we need to to be willing to act, to move in personal sacrifice. This is a step of obedience, even when that obedience might cost you. So this requires trust, right? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And it's exactly what we see with Ananias. He trusted the Lord and he obeyed the Lord when all the physical and anecdotal evidence up to that point said that to do so would kill him. He'd end up dead if he did what what the Lord was asking him to do. Because remember, Saul was a murderer, He breathed out threatenings and slaughter, according to verse 1. He was actively pursuing any follower of Jesus, and Ananias met that description quite well. He was a disciple. So what the Lord was asking Ananias to do, at least in Ananias' mind, because Ananias wasn't God. He didn't know everything that had happened to Saul. And and what we'll talk about in just a second is God didn't even give him all the information. He wanted to see how he'd respond. But so just put yourself, again, put yourself in that position. Put yourself in Ananias' position. 
to make that decision to move forward, he had to at least consider the fact that this might cost him his life. So what the Lord was asking Ananias to do required a willingness to personally sacrifice for the Lord. And Ananias, I mean, he's, he's honest. He had some questions. Because he said, here am I. I'm ready. And then like many of us, once he heard what the mission was, what the mission was he's like, all right, I'm ready to go. What do you want me to do? I want you to go talk to Saul. I mean, so, I mean Saul, Saul, like Saul, Saul? Like, are you sure? Are you sure that, that's, what, that's what you want me to do? Look at verse 11. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas. For one called Saul of Tarsus, for, for behold, he prayeth. And I've seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest, here in Damascus, he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house. You see, Ananias was asked by the Lord to do something that if you used human logic, it didn't make a lot of sense. And again, I want you to notice that the Lord didn't even lead with what he told Ananias in verse 15. Like, if you look at that, he didn't lead with that. But what he told him in verse 15 was, no, no, go thy way. He's going he's gonna to be a witness for me, and he's going to have to suffer many things for me. He didn't lead with that. What he led with was, hey, once you go see Saul, he needs to receive his sight again, and he, he, he saw in a vision that you were the guy to do that. Why don't you go talk to him? You know, there's a, there's a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Maybe you've heard of him. I want you to go visit him. And Ananias' response was, yeah, I've heard of him. <laughs> I think we've all heard of him because he's trying to kill us. We know who he is. Are you sure that's the right guy? Are you sure that's the guy I'm supposed to go see? And again, I believe the order of that information is intentional. I think the Lord just wanted to see how Ananias would respond. Because even in that, even in his questioning, he never said no. He's just like, okay, but, but, I mean... This guy's a little scary, Lord, right? You know that? You're going to protect me here? So after the brief questioning by Ananias, the Lord said, go, his way. go thy way. And in verse 17 it says, and Ananias went his way. And again, listen, he's still, he, he's not all-knowing like God. He still couldn't be sure. He, he still, I'm sure, had some doubts. Because Ananias still never received a guarantee of safety from the Lord. The Lord did tell him, hey, I've chosen this guy. He's going he's gonna to go serve me. He's going to suffer many things for my namesake. But he didn't say, no, don't worry. He's not going to kill you. He's a changed man. He won't kill you. He did not say that. I mean, he certainly made it sound better. But he didn't guarantee him safety. So Ananias could not have been 100% sure. And so, therefore, I'm sure he was a bit nervous. But he was willing to personally sacrifice for the sake of the Lord's mission. And, and the truth is, is if we ever want to be used by the Lord in, in a way that these guys that we read about in the Bible were used, we must be willing to make the same level of sacrifice. And I understand, listen, we live in America today and we don't deal with the persecution that certainly they did and the people in other parts of the world do still today. But we, we have to have a willingness to personally sacrifice at that same level because because. We, we've talked about this at much length. That, that gets to what worship of the Lord is, right? You can't separate worshiping the Lord with sacrificing for the Lord. They're tied together. And so, so let me say this. I put this on your outline sheet. We worship most and more, most importantly when we give ourselves as the offering. When we offer ourselves all that we have, all that we ever hope to be unconditionally, unreservedly, to the Lord. It's Romans 12.1, right? It's presenting our bodies as that living sacrifice. And we read that verse all the time, and we talk about that verse all the time, but it's probably still not enough. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable 
service. So we're to lay ourselves on that altar and say, okay, Lord, here am I. Send me. Have your way with me. I, I give up. I surrender my will. Everything I have, everything I hope for, it's yours. Do with it as you will. And again, we've talked about this a lot, but it's a picture we see in Genesis 22 when Abraham was asked to, to sacrifice Isaac. You know, we've talked about that, the first mention of worship and all of that. So you know that it's worship. It's true worship of the Lord when it, when it comes with the sacrifice. But, but my problem is, and, and some of yours might be the same, I find that for me it's, it's just not a one-time deal. I wish it was. Because I've made that decision before, and, and, and I crawl up on that altar, and, and maybe I'm there for a little bit, but at some point I crawl back off. And then I decide, well, maybe, maybe this isn't worth it. And if you're like me on that, you do it because we struggle with verse 2 of, of Romans 12. You can't give yourself to the Lord and be conformed to this world. This doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. You have to be transformed. By the renewing your mind. You can't be sucked up into everything that this world has to offer and live this life. You can't be consumed by the world and your selfish desires and do this. You have to be willing to take the steps, transform your mind and live according to the Bible. and Set your affection on things above and not on things of this earth. Having that spiritual perspective. But when you do that and when you're willing to act in personal sacrifice and give yourself to something that is so much bigger than you, then Christ is magnified in your life and it's good for you. Not that we should do it because it's good for us. We should do it because God is worthy, but God is so good that he works it on both ends. Paul acknowledged this in, in Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21. He said, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said it was gain for him to die, and you obviously only believe that when you have an eternal perspective on life. When you are living this life for the life to come. But if you are living like that, then... Personal sacrifice, as difficult as it may, still may be at times, it actually makes sense. It makes sense to you. You're going to obey the Lord. You just decide, listen, I'm going to obey the Lord with my time, with my talents, with my treasure. And if that means I don't have time for other things, well, so be it. That means if I don't have money for other things, well, so be it. Because this is how I want to do it. Because this is what's worth it. And, and, and so it makes sense. The, the, the personal sacrifice makes sense and you do it cheerfully. And even if you're like Ananias and it takes you a minute to get there, when you get there, you're there. And you trust and obey and you believe and know that God is going to work it, work it in you for eternal gain. Man, what a, what a great thing. So if you want to move from transformation to action, to actually doing something, and put yourself in a position to be used by, Lord, by the Lord. You need to be available and prepared. You need to act in personal sacrifice. And then third, you need to appreciate your purpose. Appreciate your purpose, the purpose that God's given you. And this gets to being content and fulfilled in what God is asking you to do. Where you, you fully understand the mission and you understand your role. And this point gets to a phrase that we have seen three times since Acts 8.26. And that phrase is, arise and go. So the angel of the Lord said it to Philip, leading him to Gaza in Acts 8.26. And the angel of the Lord said unto Philip, saying, arise and go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Right, so that's the first time, Acts 8.26. Then the Lord used the same phrase with Saul, instructing him to go into Damascus in, in Acts 9 and verse 6. We looked at this last Sunday. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go unto the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And then the Lord had the same instruction for Ananias. 
in verse 11 of Acts chapter 9, what we're looking at this morning. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And, and I'll say this up front, this is on your outline sheet, and then I'll come back and explain it. That phrase is connected to the Great Commission. A phrase is connected to the Great Commission. As I told you last week, Saul asked one of the three key questions found in the book of Acts. And it was, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that question was coming from a man just recently saved. And the answer was arise and go. So for believers in Jesus Christ, our purpose is just that. Arise and go. Go into the world. It is the Great Commission. It's Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore. And teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We are to get up and go. We're not to stay seated where we're at. We are to arise and we're to go. That is our purpose. But listen, for each individual, that purpose has its own unique characteristics and plan. What God has for me to do is different than what God has for you to do. But what I want you to understand this morning is there are not superior and inferior purposes. So we need to appreciate whatever it is that God is asking us to do. Because I want you to consider the three people that this command was given to. So first it was Philip. And Philip had a ministry. Philip was one of the first set of deacons in that Jerusalem church. So he had a ministry there. He went into Samaria Right there through Acts chapter 8, he was used by God mightily there. But, but then when the angel of the Lord told him to arise and go, it was to go to one person. It was the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip did a little bit of everything. Then we have Saul, for whom God had a much different plan. We actually see that plan. He tells Ananias what his plan for Saul is in verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear by name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And we don't have nearly the time to get into all this, but, you know, there's so much misunderstanding and misinterpretation about Bible terms like the chosen and election and those sorts of things. All I'm going to say to that is I want you to notice he's a chosen vessel for service, <laughs> not chosen for salvation. He's a chosen vessel to bear my name before the Gentiles. It was chosen for a particular job. And you, that job was very unique, a very un, had a very unique vi, mission, a very unique purpose. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. But it's also interesting that God said he was going to bear his name before kings and the children of Israel. Paul didn't exclusively go to Gentiles. In fact, when Paul would go into a city, he would go into the synagogue first. The order of those groups are important, though. Gentiles kings, children of Israel. I mean, and, and we see it all fulfilled. Like, we'll see it as we go through the book of Acts. We'll see it fulfilled. We'll see him before kings. You know, you can read verses like Philippians 1.13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and all other places. At the end of that book, 4.22, he said, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of, the, of Caesar's household, you know, where he had been. He also said in Colossians 1, verses 23 and, and 24, uh, dealing with his, the, the suffering that it was going to bring about. So, you know, that's what, what the Lord said. The Lord said, you know, you're going to bear my name before Gentiles, before kings, before the children of Israel, but, but, it, but it's also going to cause him much pain and suffering. So it was a very unique mission. It was a special mission, but it was a costly mission. And he, he lays out, you know, much of, Paul lays out much of his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28. And then in Colossians 1, he says, If you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, which was preached unto every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, fill up that which is behind of the affliction of, of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So that was Saul. It was a crazy big mission. But it certainly wasn't an easy one. So you have, you know, Philip who has a ministry in the church. He has a ministry out in Samaria. He has a ministry to an individual. You have Paul who has this just huge mission that is going to cost him a lot. And then you have this third guy named Ananias. And again, as I've mentioned, all we know about Ananias is this story and this purpose. He was a devout man with a good testimony. So, I, you know, there's no doubt 
that he served the Lord faithfully outside this one day with Saul, of course. But this is all the Bible records of him. Just one mission sent to one man. So if you, I, I say all that because I want you to compare the three men that were told to arise and go. They were all very different men with different stories and different missions. But the commonality is that each mission was given to them by the Lord. So are we going to say that, you know, the one is, a, is less important than the other? Are we going to say Saul's? Obviously, you know, we're here by some, with some respect because of, of Paul. Are we going to say Paul's mission was more important than Ananias' mission? If Ananias didn't do his mission, maybe Paul doesn't become Paul. They're all important and they're all given by the Lord and that's a commonality there. And sometimes we think that serving the Lord this way is better than serving the Lord that way. Or this ministry is more important than that ministry. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to work with little kids. I've, I have more important things to do than that. Well, have you ever considered that your investment in a little kid may be just like Ananias' investment was in Saul? Maybe working with kids is the biggest and best thing you could ever do for the Lord. Maybe you're investing in the next Paul. But we struggle to see things that way because we just have an American results-driven hierarchy mindset. And some things just seem more glamorous than others. But that's not how God works things. In fact, God hates that view of ministry and, and purpose. It's, there's a doctrine of the Nicolaitans that the Bible talks about. Like that there is some priest class that knows more than others. And that they're the only one that can really understand what the Lord has to say, you know, and that they're above everybody else. Here's what the Bible says about that viewpoint, Revelation 2.15. So, so hast thou also, also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So listen, please do not think that what you're doing in service to the Lord, it's not that big of a deal. If it's of the Lord, it's always a big deal. If he's called you to something, appreciate it. We tend to despise it if we don't think it's good enough or big enough or important enough. But that's an unbiblical view of purpose. Zechariah 4.10 says, For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. And listen, you never know what God is doing in that one mission, that one person. And you don't know what God's going to call you to next. I'm, I'm quite confident this wasn't the first thing that God had called Ananias to. And we don't know what those others are. But there was a progression, I'm sure. And so there's another commonality in these three commands to arise and go, is that God didn't give all the information up front. Well, Philip, he just told him to go to Gaza. It wasn't until after he arose and went that he found out what, why he was going. Saul was just told to go to Damascus and said very specifically that there more would come later. And Ananias was just told to go see Saul, who was at Judas' house praying, that he needed to receive his sight again. He didn't tell him until a couple verses later that all the plans that he had for Saul. And still didn't let him in on all the information. And, and the point of that is you just don't always know what God is doing. We can't. We're, we're not God. He is and we can't see what he's doing through these steps or why he's calling you to something that you might not otherwise appreciate. Maybe he does have, you know, quote unquote, bigger plans for you. I don't even, in, in this context, I don't even like saying it that way. But, you know, maybe he has something else for you. And he just wants to see your faithfulness now. Job 8, 7 says, though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase. So appreciate what God has for you to do. We're all different. God has a different plan for all of us, but they aren't inferior. They're just that. They're just different. So view it biblically. Don't view it, again, through human logic. That will get you in trouble every time. And I put this on your outline sheet because the truth is faithfulness is more important than fame. Ananias made an appearance in the Bible, but he wasn't a famous Christian. Faithfulness is more important than fame more important than any notion of prestige in our minds. 
And God knows, God keeps records of faithful service. We talked about that specifically when we went through the book of Nehemiah. All those names in chapter 3, and there's other chapters, but specifically Nehemiah chapter 3, all the names of those faithful workers who worked on the wall, they're listed in Scripture that we still read about today, 2,500 years later. And we know a guy named Ananias because he didn't despise the seemingly small mission God had given him. He had no idea. Even after the Lord told him what he was going to do. He had no idea who this was going to be and who Paul was going to be. So if you want to be used by God, you really need to understand this point because it gets to what is in us and our motives and any pride that we might be dealing with. And that brings us to our last point. If you want to move from transformation to action to be used by God, fourth, you need to abolish your pride. And this one won't take long. I know we're almost out of time. This won't take long, but you can't miss it. I've told you time and time again that as a Christian, pride is the biggest danger we face in this life. And, and honestly, it's not even close. It's the original sin of Lucifer. It's the five I wills of Isaiah 14. It's something God hates, according to Proverbs 6:17. And it's just a thing that every single one of us in here deal with every day of our life. And it was something that Saul dealt with. He described who he was and what he thought of himself before his conversion in Philippians chapter 3. Verses 4 through 6, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. And he was proud of all that before his salvation, right? Who he was and his position, his standing. This is something Saul had to work through in order to become Paul, right, so to speak. And it was the work that the Lord had to do in him to be able to use him like he planned. And we see that work occur in Acts 9.18. Saul had been blinded by the glory of the Lord. So the Lord sent Ananias to lay hands on him so he could receive his sight back. And you have to see the picture in what God did as he was opening his eyes to what was to come. Acts 9.18. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith, and he arose and was baptized. This is a very interesting picture and an interesting phrase that God uses here. It was, a, it was as it had been scales on his eyes, preventing him from seeing. And the word scales is not found many times in the Bible. It's found ten times in nine verses. But every time it is mentioned, not surprisingly, it's connected to a fish or a sea creature. And one of those... Is what's known as Leviathan in Job 41. And I don't have time to prove this to you, but Leviathan is Satan. It's, that's true. I don't have time to prove it to you. You should prove it out yourself. But if you study it out, that's, what, that's the conclusion you'll come to. The originator of pride. And I want you to see what the Bible says about Leviathan scales. Job 41, verses 14 through 18, describing the sea creature Leviathan. says, who can open the doors of his face? Okay, and, and, and where are our eyes located? Uh, on our face, right? His teeth are terrible round about. Listen to verse 15. His scales are his pride. Shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to another, those scales, that no air can come in between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be surrendered by his kneesings. A light does shine and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. And those scales are so close together and so stuck together. It's the, they're like the eyes of the eyelids of the morning, right? And you know how eyelids can be in the morning, especially if you're sick and all the gunk and you can't even open your eyes. But there's an obvious connection here. As scripture defines for us, by comparing scripture with scripture, we can define what's going on with Saul. He was getting that last bit of pride out of himself. You see, it was the scales of pride that covered Saul's eyes so that he couldn't see. It was the scales of pride. He couldn't see what God was doing. His scales are his pride. He couldn't see what God was doing. He couldn't see the truth of the Bible. He thought he was doing right. He thought he was serving the Lord by persecuting Christians. But he was blinded. And he was blinded by his pride. There were the scales over his eyes. And that's always Satan's goal, to blind us. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, many other verses. And that is true for so many believers today, both or just people, both lost and saved. 
And they can't see, and they might even think they can. They think they're seeing right. But the truth is their pride has them blinded and fooled. And they're blinded to the truth of God's word. They're blinded to the truth of a situation. Listen, pride is our enemy. And it is satanic. And God cannot use you, at least not for his own glory, if you can't get it under control. Proverbs 16.5 says, Every one that is of a proud heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand joined in hand, he shall not be unpunished. And you need to pay attention to the words of that verse. Everyone, every person that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Man, those are serious words. It's a sobering verse. So we need to abolish it. We need to get it out of our lives. It has no place in the life of a believer. And shame on us for not caring about it like we should and struggling with it as much as we should. Me at the front of the line. But let's get it out of our lives and out of our church so we can be used by him to change the world just like Saul. And while we're doing that, let's be available and prepared. Let's act in personal sacrifice and appreciate our purpose because then we can truly be used by God and move from transformation to action and be about serving the Lord and be about the purpose that he has for not only you individually but for us collectively as a church. Let's do that. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as you're settling your heart this morning, I just ask you to, to, to ask of the Lord that question that we looked at last week. What wilt thou have me to do? And is there something that the Lord spoke to you this morning that you need to do, that you need to get right? Maybe you need to go to the new members luncheon today. Maybe you need to join the cost of discipleship class on December 3rd. Maybe you need to get saved. Whatever it is you need to do, why don't you do it? Why don't you do it today? This altar is, 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 is these steps is, is your altar. You can come forward and pray. If you need someone to pray with you, you can grab one of us. If you need to get saved, you can come talk to us. You can pray there in your pew. Do whatever you need to do. But, but if, if the Lord's asking you to do something, I would just encourage you to be obedient to what he's asking of you. And, and we're going to close out in, in one final song. But again, as we do that, that is, that's your time. That is your time. Don't, don't you know, allow people standing and singing around you to, for you to miss what God has for you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and, and thank you for the time that we have together today as a body. And Lord, I, I just ask you to work in, in individuals' hearts, work in all of our hearts to just mold us more into the image and, and if there's in, into your image to, to, to serve you the way you would have for us. And, and Lord, the, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they meet you this morning. And if they have any questions about that, that you'll give them the courage to come talk to one of us about how they can get saved today. Lord, we love you and we're so grateful for all you do. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.